This morning I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 45, uh, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and, and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me... He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Canada Day. It's one of those Sundays where things feel and are a little bit different at TCC. We scale back a few things just to give uh, various volunteers a break, our children's ministry. And so this morning, we only have uh, children's ministry covered for nursery. That's uh, those that are two and under. And uh, that's just over there if you haven't found your way uh, there already. And then uh, if you want to keep your child, uh, there's also an infant care room right through the glass windows back there. And if your child is two, there's also child care provided upstairs. Those of you who have children that are a little bit older, you should have on the way in received a, a little word search if uh, they want to do that. It's based on the passage that Corey just read. Uh, if you didn't get one of those, I know that the ushers will have some of those back at, uh, at their tables back there if you want to help yourself uh, to that as well. Well, this morning and this spring, uh, really since after Easter, we have been talking about standing together. It's been a series of messages speaking to the theme and some of the major relationships that uh, we experience in life. And within this larger umbrella series that we've called Standing Together, we've had really, in essence, three mini-series. The first focused on relationships in general, and primarily what we would experience within this community that we call church. We talked about some of the one-anothers that, when practiced, help us experience deeper levels of community. Uh, the second mini-series focused on marriage. There were only three messages from three different speakers, Pastor Ken, uh, Corey Anderson, who just read scripture for us, and myself. Uh, if you missed them, I know that all three are available online if you're interested. Uh, the last of the mini-series spoke to the matters related to the family. Uh, we've looked at the relationship between parents and children, at the role of dad, and then last week, Pastor Ken had us thinking about the marks of a healthy family. You see, it's great to know and to have a blueprint to follow. I think we all desire health. We all want to be part of something that is healthy and vibrant, whether it's the company that we work for, or the church that we're part of, or our families themselves. 
And today, as we bring both this larger series, Standing Together, and the smaller mini-series on the family to a close, I want us to think about our past. Chances are that we have experienced some pain in our past. There have been events and situations that have happened to us that have shaped us. It's true. We are a product of our families. Pastor Ken had a great analogy last week about saying that kids are kind of like wet cement, and we have an opportunity as parents to mold them and and shape them. Those formative years spent in the context of our own families have shaped us, and they've had a lasting impact on us. But I got thinking, what if our experience growing up wasn't the healthiest relationship? What, what if it wasn't a healthy environment? What if we could describe our relationship with that probably all-too-common uh, word? You probably know what I'm already thinking of, dysfunction. We talk about dysfunctional families. And I guess my question to you this morning is simply this. Are we then destined to forever be influenced by that dysfunction? And is there any hope for us? And I hope that as I go through the rest of this message that you hear a resounding yes. There is tremendous hope. And so this morning, as we think about our past, I realize that it might be painful for us, more so for some than for others. We bring it up and we wish that we wouldn't. We try not to think about it. But every once in a while, it surfaces. And so when you come to church and, 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 and the message is on thinking about our past, right away you're like, oh, great, here we go again. But I hope that we can work through some things together this morning. Because I don't want us to stay in our past. Victims of our past. Held in bondage to the events of our past. I want us to break free from the power of the past. I want us, as we're talking this morning, to rise above our past. And to move forward with hope. You see, this is about going back in order to go forward. Because, you see, personally, I believe that it's important to be able to look back to our past, but not live there. It's like driving. I use this analogy often because I think there's no better analogy for this. But if you're driving and you're going down the road, you have to regularly look into the rearview mirror just so that you're aware of your surroundings and what's going on around you. But if you're driving and you stay fixated on that rearview mirror, then you will likely run into some serious trouble. So just a quick glance into the rearview mirror and then to focus on the future and all that God has in store for us. Because God has plans and purposes for his children. God has a desire for his children. And that desire in each of our lives is simply this, transformation, change. That's why he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the Romans, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You just think of that, that, that we have to change and, and the way we think will be different. His goal, God's goal for us, is that in Christ, Christ would be formed in us. In Galatians 4.19, he writes, Paul writes, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so for the Apostle Paul, this was a great passion of his, so that he would see the people of Galatia, that, that they would see Christ formed in them. That there would be this change that would take place. And this transformation is only possible because of what Jesus does in our lives. 
And the Bible will often speak of old and new, past and future. Listen to this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And it just takes us back to that place that when we cross the line of faith, when we put our trust and our confidence in Jesus and we say yes to Jesus and we're going to follow Jesus, that there is a rebirth that takes place. We are made new. But our past isn't instantly just wiped out. We have to work and walk this out through the rest of our lives. Now, at the risk of saying something that probably needs way more explanation than I have time for this morning, there are two basic biblical truths that I want to keep us in mind as we go through this message this morning. The first is this, that there are blessings and sins that are passed from generation to generation. So it's very likely that what we might be dealing with in our families today has been passed down from earlier generations. And I'll just give you an example of that in a moment. And the second truth is this, that discipleship, as a believer in Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, really in essence is the process of putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and our culture and relearning how to do life in the family of God. The goal now becomes to be all that God intends for us to be. And it requires hard work. We are essentially reborn, and we can look at many passages that, that talk about this being born again and rebirth. But we are reborn, in essence, to be reparented in God's family. Jesus said some very direct and and sobering words. If anyone comes to me, he says, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he's just emphasizing the fact that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, then how things are to be done in God's family is more important than what takes place in our own uh, past families. And so we're now in a, a new family. We're part of God's family, what we might call the church. And we're given a, a new name. And now there's new loyalties. And the commandments that we now base our life on are not the ones that we receive from our families. And if you think about it, all of our families have certain commandments. Things that we've experienced growing up. We've learned to deal with things in a certain way based on what we've seen and modeled for us. Things like maybe anger, how anger was dealt with and, and, and how it was expressed in a, in a home. Chances are that we've learned that from, from our families. Our view on money and how we, how we understand the use of it and proper stewardship of it. Or marriage, how we view marriage and do we hold it in high honor. Even something like recreation, the, the things that, that we like to do as families growing up probably our children picked up and will pick, we'll pass on to their families as well. Uh, conflict is a huge one, right? We have learned how to fight, usually rather poorly, within the context of our homes or how we show affection. If you come from a European background, 
uh, like myself, probably initially, there, wasn't, there, there just wasn't a whole lot of affection, right? And so you could almost tell somebody's cultural background when you go and hug them and they're just like, you know, and you're like, oh, you must, uh, you know, your parents probably came from Germany or something like that, right? It's just, it's just a, a fact. We've, we've learned these things. They, they've become part of us as we are then um, older and mature and have our own families and in many cases, we'll pass that on to our families as well. You see, our views on just about everything, including politics, whatever, everything is probably shaped and influenced by our families. But then we come to Christ and we're reborn into God's family and now we have a new question to ask. If those are the commandments of our families, how does God view these things? And so we start to think differently and we have to sort of almost be reprogrammed. And that's why Paul writes to Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because how you think now is going to be different. And this process of transformation, as I said, is called discipleship. It's breaking the patterns of the past, patterns that were probably unhealthy and sinful in many ways, and now doing things God's way, regardless of how you used to do things in your family now we need to do them God's way. For some of you, I know at TCC, you are first-generation Christians. You have not had a family legacy of faith. And you have come to faith in your own time and in your own way as God has called you to himself. And God has essentially reached down into that family that you were a part of and by His grace has plucked you out and you were reborn into God's family and you are a new creation. And for every one of us, whether we are first-generation Christians or 14th or 15th, whatever it is, our family history is never our destiny. Jesus Christ is. He is our new legacy. And we're to be formed into his image. To help you think this through and process this a little bit more, I want us to look at the very sad and tragic story of Joseph's family. The story of Joseph's family is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Genesis being the first book of the Bible. So this is one of the, the first families, as it were. Now, there were some obviously before, and I'll make reference to those. But... But 25% of the book of Genesis is devoted to this one family. That's quite a bit of space given to this one family. And if we had the time to do an extensive study, we would learn many incredible lessons from his life. But if there's anything that you already know about Joseph, you probably already know that he was able to break free from his own horrific history. There was so much generational sin in his family, you would think that he would be trapped by that. But instead of living out that family legacy, he busts out and becomes a blessing. He rose above his past. So let me just review a little bit of Joseph's story for you this morning about Joseph and his family. At the beginning of Genesis 37, where we're introduced to Joseph, Joseph is 17 years old. And in case we ever wonder about the Bible, I love how brutally honest and, and there's no sugarcoating of the mess of Joseph's family and those that preceded it. His father was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. And you think, well, that's pretty good. But born to four different women, two wives 
and then to each of their maid servants he had children with. So just right off the top, you know that that kind of a, a family unit uh, makes things pretty complicated, doesn't it? Joseph was the second youngest. And Jacob, his father, favored him. He favored him. And he favored him mostly because of Joseph's mother, who was Rachel, was Jacob's favorite woman. I mean, if you have four, you're going to have to probably pick a favorite, right? And that's what he did. But because Jacob favored Joseph, his brothers hate his guts. I don't think there's any other way of putting that. Jacob openly favors him. Remember the coat? That's probably from our Sunday school days. You remember Joseph and getting the the, the special coat? Jacob, his father, essentially put the coat on him and set him apart from all of his other brothers. And the thing is, is we don't even have to guess at how that made his brothers feel. Because in Genesis 37 and verse 4, it says that they, that is his brothers, hated him. And they could not speak a kind word of him or to him. Can you imagine? I mean, if there was ever a family that could be labeled dysfunctional, this is it, right? It was a mess, a total disaster. And Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, he sees of all people, his brothers bowing down to him. Now, was this pride on Joseph's part? Maybe just some youthful arrogance? I don't know, but it was definitely immature because you know what he does? He tells his brothers who already hated him. Right? He's just compounding the problem. He's making matters worse. He knows he's hated. He's being mistreated and despised. And then he goes, oh, by the way, guys, just so you know, someday all of you are going to bow down to me. Well, you can imagine how well that went over, right? His brothers don't appreciate that very much at all. And their hate only grows to the point that they seriously start considering actually killing their youngest brother. And amongst the brothers, the older brothers, they start to debate this. And they decide, well, no, you know what? It probably wouldn't be good to kill him. That's their first wise decision. But instead of killing him, they decide that they're going to sell him into slavery and just send him into another country. This was their way of getting rid of of this brother that they couldn't stand. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the depth of their depravity is seen by the fact that they took that coat that that Jacob clearly knew that he gave to Joseph, and he took that that coat, slaughtered a goat, and took the blood and put it on the coat so they could take the coat and present it to their father, now starting an an unbelievable deception to cover up for the fact that they just sold their brother off into slavery. We're sorry, Dad, we found this. 
and Jacob grieves. Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a, a commander to, to Pharaoh, an official of Pharaoh's. And uh, in that environment, Potiphar's wife takes an interest to Joseph. She eventually ends up accusing him of something that he clearly did not do, and he ends up in prison. I'm wondering what's going through Joseph's mind at this point. Because when Potiphar's wife came on to him, he clearly states, I could never do such thing and sin against God. He knew that it would be wrong for him to have a relationship with a, with a woman who was not his wife and in fact was the wife of another man, the man that he was working for. And he knew that that was wrong. So he stood on his moral convictions and in the end still gets accused falsely, ends up in prison, and I'm thinking he might be in prison going, God, this is what I get for following you? I've given my life to you and I honored you in that situation, and now I'm in prison. But he doesn't go down that road. I'm sure he had time in prison to think about his family and all that happened to get him there how he was betrayed, how he was sold by his own family, how they literally destroyed his life and took it from him. But he doesn't go there. And through an amazing variety of circumstances, he ultimately ends up the number two person in Egypt directly under Pharaoh. There's a severe famine in the land, but under his leadership they prepared for it, and now he was responsible for distributing the food and it was the, this food that they had in Egypt because they prepared for this, this famine. It was because of the food that was in Egypt that his brothers come from Israel to Egypt because they had heard that, that, that there was food available in Egypt. And it's there, there that we read in Genesis 45, the passage that, that Corey read for us, where ultimately Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. Absolutely remarkable. It's interesting, right? The dream that he had ultimately came true. They came bowing before him saying, we need your help. We need food. We're starving to death. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. What would you and I do in that instance? We've had years to think about how we were mistreated, how we were abused physically, how we were sold into slavery, all the things that had gone wrong in our lives. Betrayed, abandoned. Would we use that as an opportunity then to ultimately get revenge? He had the power to do so, to make them suffer, to make them grovel a little bit more. Or just to tell them to get out, get lost, I don't care about you. But he doesn't do that. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? That was his greatest, is, is, is the one thing he really wanted to know. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They were speechless. They, 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 they had no words. And part of it was, if this is really Joseph, we might now be facing payback time. We might be in big trouble. And so they were absolutely terrified. So here's the question. Joseph doesn't go down that road, does he? And we'll look more at a few of those verses in a moment. But the question for me then is, if that's just a real quick overview of Joseph's life and story, how was he ultimately able to emerge out of the mess of his family? And it wasn't just Jacob and the, the, the 13 children and the four wives. It was generations before him. It was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that whole generation of families, if you pick it up in Genesis 15 and read it, it's actually quite fascinating reading to understand what's going on. Uh, families filled with lies and deception. Any wonder why the brothers could take a coat, dip it in goat's blood and present it to their dad? It was part of their family legacy. Sibling rivalry and hatred. Infidelity. Favoritism was a common theme through many of those relationships. Unforgiveness. I mean, you would think if there was someone, if there ever was someone that was absolutely trapped, it would have been Joseph. But somehow, he is able to pull out of that and break free. And he breaks the power of sin. And not only that, he ultimately becomes a blessing to others. See, I don't, you need to know this morning what I think God's plan for us is that through Christ, we too would break free from our past and become a blessing to others. If Ephesians 2 chapter, verses 1 through 10 essentially lays this out as well. And I won't take the time to read it, but it's in essence where we're talking about, where, where Paul's writing about what it takes to be made alive in Christ. He says, each of us has a past, but now, now that God who is rich in mercy, he reaches out to us and we're saved by God's grace. And he says, you are God's workmanship created uh, with good works to do. He's had these things planned for all of eternity. And Joseph, I think, went through this process in order to break free from the power of his past. And I want us just to learn from this, to wrestle with some of these. And then I hope, too, that we can rise above our own past. I've been fighting a, a cold the last few days, so... <clears throat> I can tell when I'm just about to lose my, my voice. So let's talk about what took place in Joseph's life in order for him to rise above our, his past. And if these don't apply, see if these don't apply to us. The first is simply this, allowing yourself to be broken. Start there. 
Joseph allowed himself to be broken. Joseph found himself in three pits. The cistern that his, his uh, brothers threw him down, where they kept him until they decided what to do with him. Then the prison that he was, uh, uh, was in falsely accused. And in terms of the slavery that he um, uh, found himself in. You would think that those three events alone, those three pits that he found himself in, were traumatic events that would have marked his life. And the simple application this morning is when you think back on your own life, do you see any such pits in your own life? Traumatic events that have impacted you, maybe even to this day. And without at a great risk of, of minimizing that, and that's not my desire at all to minimize any hurt or pain that you experienced in that. Whenever we look at the pits of our life, we have basically two choices. And the first is simply that we can allow ourselves to become bitter because of that event. And when we have bitterness, there's anger. And when there's anger, there's all sorts of other emotions as well. And we're blaming and we're pointing the finger at everybody else. Well, you did this to me and they did this to me. And and we can just go in this circle of just being bitter and angry at the people around us and the people that hurt us. And it continues to affect us. Or we can choose to be broken. To just acknowledge that Yes, it happened. It was painful. It was hurtful. Joseph would never minimize in the events that he went through. But one phrase, as you read through Joseph's story, you will see time and time and time again, is maybe slight variations of this, but it's there. God was with him. God was with him. God blessed him. Because he walked with God. And in Joseph's life, you see a man who in the midst of it all is just allowing himself to be broken by God and the events of life rather than becoming bitter and angry. The result of his pain, which really, if you stop and think about it, the roots of it were in, because of some of his own failure. He could have blamed his dad for favoring him. He could have blamed his brothers for impacting him. But if he came to that place and realized, you know what, as a 17-year-old, I was pretty immature and I shouldn't have even bothered to tell my brothers a dream. It was just arrogance on my part. I was trying to get back at them. That was a pretty stupid thing to do, rubbing the fact that he was his father's favorite in the face of his brothers. But ultimately, as things crash around him, he comes to the place where he knows that there is no place to go but to God. And he walks with God in forgiveness and grace. He's just broken by the pain and the sin of his past. And every family has some sinful patterns that we pass on from generation to generation. And we have a choice to be broken by that sin, call it what it is, admit it, and just receive God's forgiveness. That's what allowed the Apostle Paul to say, I am the worst of all sinners, he said. He wasn't groveling in that. He wasn't belittling himself. It was just an acknowledgement on his part that yes, there's sin. And there's pain and there's problems. And if we allow ourselves to go back over the events of our lives and just be broken by them, if we look around and just are honest with ourselves and say, you know what, I'm as broken as anyone in this room, 
I don't need to pretend that I'm someone that I'm not. I am a broken person. And broken people cannot live without God. And sometimes we go through horrific events and we're not broken and we can't forgive. And it becomes a brokenness issue. And there's lots more that could be said about that, but you'll see how this flows, I think. So we're broken. Uh, we allow ourselves to be broken. Secondly, we trust in the sovereignty of God. We trust in the sovereignty of God. This is clearly a strength in Joseph's life. In verse 8 of chapter 45 that was read, he is able to say, So then, it was not you who sent me here. And we all stop and think, we're going, well, no, he is there directly as a result of the actions of his brothers. But years later, he's come to a place where he says, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. You see, Joseph clearly understands that what his brothers did to him was an evil act. But he does understand something about God sending him there. That God somehow was over all of this. That God was orchestrating the events of his life, even in the horrific evil that happened to him. And some of us have been through very tragic things in life. Sometimes in the context of our own families. Events and situations that have happened to us. And we might, like Joseph, say that was evil, a horrific evil. And what happened to Joseph was evil. But you know what? He was able to step back and say, you know, I don't understand the mystery of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and how all of that works out. I, I don't get that. But I do know this. That God is on the throne, he's powerful, and he's mighty, and he's good, and I'm in this prison here, but God somehow sovereignly is working something out. I don't understand it, I don't get it, but that does not change how I view God. See, the good news is, is that God never ever loses or wastes any of our past for our future. Even our sin. Even our maybe youthful rebellion. Because as we offer it to him, he takes it and is able to work it for good. Because that's what Joseph was able to see. He was able to say, you know what? God is at work in and through the mess of my family and the evilness of my brothers, even though I ended up here in Egypt. You see, the purposes of God are hidden and mysterious. And yet somehow he works out the big picture. And what we're called to do is to simply walk with God, be faithful to him, even when we don't fully understand what's going on. And to keep in mind this, as Isaiah wrote in chapter 55, verse 8, God saying this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. And so we trust in the sovereignty of God. Let me ask you, 
As you think about your own life and all that has happened, you might say, you know, I've made a mess of my life, but God is good and He is sovereign, and so I'm going to offer it to Him. You see, that's part of going back and in order to go forward, and it's necessary so that we don't become bitter and blamed for the rest of our lives. As I said earlier, when Joseph ended up in prison because of how he, he ran away from Potiphar's wife, you know, this is what I get for being faithful. Where are you, God? He could have done all of that. But no, even in prison, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. And I suspect most of us, or maybe it's just me, would get to prison and maybe just say, God, I'm done with you. I follow you. I'm obedient. And this is what I get? Look at this. You see, we want to know everything, don't we? We might even say, well, God, if, if I'm going to end up in prison, that's okay, but where are we going to end up in 10 years? We want to be sure of the ending before we'll really say we'll follow. But we have to understand that God's ways are higher. It, it's, it's a mystery, and we can't always figure it out. But if we can truly believe that even in the stuff that we don't understand, God has a purpose and if we can just look at it from this one perspective to say this, that of all of the purposes, at least this one is true, God wants me to be a blessing to others. And so we have a choice to be broken and then to trust God even when we don't know or understand what's going on. The third step is when we come to the place where we can admit honestly the sadness and sins of your family. Admit honestly the sadness and sins of your family. Here in this text and in six other times, we read about Joseph weeping. And he's weeping about his family. He's weeping about his whole situation. It's a very hard thing to do. And in verse 2 of the passage that we read, he, did you catch that? He was weeping so loudly, bawling, you'd have to say, that even those outside of the room, behind closed doors, heard him. So this wasn't just a little cry in the corner. This was an outpouring and an unleashing of grief and sadness about the mess of his life. But most of us never allow ourselves to go there. And what's amazing in Joseph's life is that Joseph ultimately ends up with two children, two sons. In chapter 41, you can read about that. He marries an Egyptian priest's daughter, and their first son, they name Manasseh, which means making forget. Making forget. And it says, quote, Because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. See what's going on there? He is saying, even though he remembers all those events, he's going to name his firstborn with a name that every time he calls him, he reminds him exactly of what God has done in his life. He's making me forget. He's making me forget because I've been broken by that. I'm trusting in the sovereignty of God. I've wept over it, and he's making me forget. And then he has a second son, Ephraim, which means twice fruitful. He says, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Do you see again how he acknowledges the fact that there was pain and there was suffering in his past? 
But in spite of that, God has made him fruitful. And so even in the naming of his sons, he's carrying some of the sadness and he's admitting it very honestly. And we are often so deeply resistant to going back and thinking about our past and the events that happened. And that's true for many reasons. We think, well, what good will come of it? Nothing will ever change. I can't change the things that happened. But you see, there's a healthy way of going back. And that healthy way of going back is just to admit honestly. It's about being broken, about forgiveness. And that can only happen if we honestly grieve. And I know I've had conversations with people who, who have been trying to forgive people for a very long time, but it just keeps coming back. And I just got thinking as I thought about it this week, I wonder if we've ever really grieved those situations. Because we are never free from what we have not forgiven. If we've not forgiven someone, we are always going to be held by the memories and the pain of that situation. Joseph is able to forgive his brothers. And there's not even a hint of bitterness here. He sees it all from God's perspective. He understands now that God has a purpose. And out of his brokenness, out of the trust in the sovereignty of God, out of his honest admission of sadness, out of his grieving, he is able to move on. Two more. Number four, we're rewriting our life script according to Scripture. We rewrite our life script. When you think about this, you know, this is a bit of a, a stretch, I realize this, because we can't get inside Joseph's head. We don't know what Joseph was thinking. But if we just stop and try to imagine experiencing what he experienced, through his growing up years, he picked up many unbiblical life scripts, many voices shouting to him. And he makes a mistake as a 17-year-old, and he might have thought to himself for the rest of his life, I'm never going to make a mistake again. Dreams are dangerous. If my brothers treat me this way, I must be unlovable. I'm worthless. I shouldn't be myself. I don't trust anyone, and I won't ever trust anyone. But he doesn't buy into any of these. And many of us have life scripts, little phrases, something that was said to us, even within our own families, that we rehearse over and over and over again. But then we're reborn, and yet we keep listening to the messages. We're never going to trust any, buddy. I've I was betrayed. I'm never going to get close to anybody. I'm worthless. I'm nobody. That wasn't Joseph's script. Chapter 45 here in verse 3 and 4, on two occasions, he has to say to his brothers, I am Joseph, your brother. He identifies with his family, even though it was the very people that sent him off, disowned him, wanted to get rid of him. Now he says, I am your brother. And I think he's come to the place where he knows that he's loved by God and he understands who he is. I am Joseph. And every one of us as a child of God has to come to that place and just say, 
I am a child of God. I am known by Him. He cares for me. He loves me. He wants the best for my life. Those are the kind of things that we have to hear over and over again, that we are loved by God, known by Him. Those have to replace some of the thoughts that we've had about our lives growing up. And so you see there's brokenness. We come to that place of just acknowledging that we need God. We trust in His sovereignty that He is in control of all things. We honestly admit our sadness. We start to replace old, unbiblical life scripts with new scripts. And lastly, we then partner with God to be a blessing. We partner with God to be a blessing. You see, Joseph understands that God's purpose for his life is to be a blessing. And verses 5 through 8 in this passage, Joseph just explains to his brothers exactly and from his perspective about what God had done. He goes, I'm your brother, the one that you sold into Egypt, but don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves. You see, he's even trying to, to console them because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And he explains that there's been the famine and how, how they stockpiled in the, during times of abundance so that they would have food during the times of famine. And he is able to say to his brothers, because it's about saving lives. Sometimes when we go through life, we're just trying to survive. We just want to get, we're just getting through the next day and through the next day and through the next day. And if we can just make it through to the weekend and have a long weekend and, and we can get some rest and then we're going to just kind of survive again. If there's a message that I think the Bible clearly says from beginning to end is that God's people are more than survivors. Joseph breaks the sinful part, but he ultimately brings blessing out of it. Here is a place where he could have absolutely destroyed his family. He had the power to do damage, but he doesn't. Instead, he chooses to bring blessing. So as we wrap this up this morning, I want to just ask you a very simple question. What are you doing with your life? What purpose do you believe that God has given you? I'm not talking about the role that he's given you as a parent or as a teacher or as a lawyer or as a doctor or as a plumber or a contractor or whatever it is, but what are you doing with your life? Our lives are to be a blessing to others. And God has given us a history. He's allowed experiences to happen in our lives. He's given us a cultural background. It's been part of our family. There have been major events. Some of those have been extremely tragic and painful. And somehow God takes all of that to accomplish his great plans and purposes for us. Even though there were times when others intended it for evil. And God uses those things to save us and to make our lives a blessing to others. That's Joseph's story. What is God's story for your life? Do you realize that God is writing your story? 
And I hope if you've heard one thing this morning, you realize this morning that whatever your past is, you are not trapped in that kind of generational legacy. That you have the opportunity right now to break some of that and to to rewrite your, your life story with God, walking with God, recognizing that He loves you, that God has a purpose for you. And this transformation, this discipleship process, this is hard work. It's not easy. This is not getting a Bible verse and memorizing it. This is maturing into a Joseph so that we can be a blessing to others. Transforming from our past into our future and rising above our past. Starting a new legacy one of blessing and one of hope and one of unconditional love. Listen, friends, here's it. This is it. This is the last sentence, last thing I'm going to say. The greatest gift we can give to our families is to rise above our past.